Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. As, uh, as you turn on Georgia Highway 2 from Highway 193, you'll likely see a green road sign there on the right just as soon as you turn. It says that you are officially driving on the Desmond T. Doss Medal of Honor Highway. You probably don't give too much thought to that sign since, like most other road signs, they start to blend in with their surrounding over the course of time. Most people, honestly, didn't know who Desmond Doss was prior to the 2016 movie that told his story, Hacksaw Ridge. Doss grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in World War II, Doss decided to enlist in the Army. However, his religious convictions prohibited him from carrying a weapon. You see, he was a a faithful member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. However, he loved his country and still wanted to serve, and so he enlisted in the Army as a medic. He was defined as a conscientious objector. However, he called himself a conscientious consenter uh, because he did not um, avoid enlistment. Instead, he enlisted as a nonviolent participant. However, his status as a uh, conscientious objector resulted in lots of misery and ridicule. His commanding officer, Dr. Uh, or Captain Jack Glover, tried to get him transferred. Doss told him, he said, Don't ever doubt my courage, because I'll be right by your side saving your life while you take life. His captain responded, You're not going to be my, by my blank inside if you don't have a gun. Eventually, Doss will be deployed to the Pacific Theater of World War II. His bravery in the Battle of Okinawa would ultimately earn him the Congressional Medal of Honor. You see, over a 12-hour period during that battle, Doss was credited with saving 75 men, including his captain. He, they had to climb up a, a steep cliff, and again, Mel Gibson does a great job in the movie portraying this. They had to climb up a steep cliff where on top of this, uh, this plateau were Japanese entrenched soldiers, and they climbed up and literally walked into the equivalent of a human hacksaw. Doss, however, overnight was, was spent the night gathering those wounded soldiers, taking them to the cliff, and then lowering them down with a rope. Every time he finished, he would pray, Lord, give me just one more. Over the course of those 12 hours, he rescued 75. He was too humble, so he claimed it was 50. His uh, fellow soldiers claimed it was 100, so they split the difference and said that it was 75. Um, Doss's story, uh, if you ever are near the Chattanooga National Cemetery, you may not know this, but Doss is buried there in, in the uh, Chattanooga National Cemetery. You can go pay your respects there. He's in section P, number 6399. Doss's story, it does give us pause to consider the source of his convictions. Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek or going the extra mile, uh, they're hard words. They're words that are hard to understand, even harder uh, to apply. They're easy to get wrong. When I was in an ethics class in seminary, our professor had a guest lecturer come in one day, and he was a full-blown pacifist, one who believed in non-aggression whatsoever. One of my classmates asked him if his family were under attack, 
would he take up a weapon to defend them? And he refused. I remember how angry that response made me, how, how, how I wanted to act like that soldier just then and, and test his uh, theory of non-aggression. I wanted to go punch him right between the eyes for a man to say he wouldn't take up a weapon to defend his own family that were under attack. All this raises the question, though, how, how should kingdom citizens respond in a world that's quite honestly characterized by violence? Do Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount provide us with any clarity? Let's turn to them now in Matthew chapter 5, in beginning in verse 38. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. If you would, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn, him, uh, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. God, I am grateful for your words, as hard as they are for us today. May we apply them correctly and understand them in the fullness of what they mean. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We have to acknowledge these are difficult words. These are hard words to apply. Some have taken Jesus' words here to advocate for an absolute pacifism, like my lecturer in seminary. Jesus' command to, to not resist the one who is evil has caused some well-meaning Christians seeking to understand the mind of Christ to come to the conclusion that Christians can't serve in the military or function in a capacity of law enforcement because by the very nature of those tasks, you are opposing evil. I can assure you these verses have been taken out of context. They've been misquoted, misused, and even abused, perhaps more so than any other passage in the scriptures. However, as kingdom citizens, we need to not throw these verses out as being too hard to understand or difficult to apply. We need to understand what Jesus is asking us to do because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we need to have some level of understanding. However, if we are going to understand hard verses, our, our first step is to understand the context of those verses. But not just the context immediately in the passage itself, but the context in which the text is given. As I have said, there, there's always a conversation taking place behind the scenes, ones that we're not privy to. There's cultural conversations. There's, there's, there's things happening behind the scenes that, that we don't always know. But when we understand what's going on behind the scenes, it also helps us to understand exactly what Jesus is instructing us here in the Word of God. When we turn to the context, we actually find that, that turning the other cheek it's not actually about violence and pacifism at all. 
So, so let's dig in here to understand what Jesus is asking us to do. He begins, as he has in all of these, these, these passages here in chapter 5, you have heard it said. And there he quotes the Old Testament law. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, that's a verbatim quote from the Old Testament. We find that law explained over in Exodus 21 and Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy chapter 19. This principle is known as the lex talionis. The lex talionis. Now, you'll probably never use that word in a sentence, and today may be the only day you ever hear it, but it may come up on Jeopardy one day, and you may become rich as a result of it. John Stott explains the lex talionis this way. He said, it is the principle of an exact retribution whose purpose was both to lay the foundation of justice, specifying the punishment which a wrongdoer deserved, and to limit the compensation of his victim to an exact equivalent and no more. It thus had the double effect of both defining justice and restraining revenge. It also prohibited the taking of the law into one's own hands by the ghastly vengeance of a family feud. One could easily envision a situation where retribution in a less legally developed society might continue to escalate. If you were to give me a black eye, I might knock out your teeth. And in response to me knocking out your teeth, you might be compelled to break my neck. And in response to you breaking my neck, my family may attack your family. And the next thing you know, we're the Hatfields and the McCoys. With the law in place, the lex talionis, the requirement for justice is met with simply two black eyes. Problem solved. In theory... This principle is imperfectly applied. However, the principle is at work in our own criminal justice system. For example, the death penalty is typically, generally only reserved for those who have committed murder. Uh, that's the only time that that penalty is, is applied. Now, we don't go to the point of, of taking eyes for eyes and teeth for teeth. We equivalate, equi make an equivalent there with, with prison sentences and things like that. But we also recognize that there's, there's to be just punishments, that, that you can't have excessive criminal penalties for, for things. That is the principle at work in our own legal system. There was no problem with the lex talionis in Jesus' day, the problem, though, was the application of the law. Because the Pharisees' chief concern was always, what can I get away with and not break the law? What is the limit of what I can do? How far can I push this? This entire section of the Sermon on the Mount is about how a kingdom citizen's righteousness is to exceed the righteousness of those religious leaders. So in the immediate context of our passage, we see that Jesus isn't offering guidance to, to foreign policy decisions. You know, President Trump doesn't look at this and say, now when engaging in foreign policy, let's apply the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth principle. That's not exactly how it works. We also don't find that happening uh, guiding local police departments in their enforcing of the law. There's no such thing thing is turn the other cheek when it comes to matters of law enforcement and international relations. But what Jesus is doing, he's getting to the heart of individual kingdom citizens and how we relate 
to one another and how we relate to the world around us. Which is why all four of Jesus' examples that he offers here in chapter 5 ultimately boil down to individual actions rather than corporate policy. However, let us be clear, Jesus' words, when applied to individual citizens, should have us taking a long, hard look at our level of restraint and self-control. To illustrate this point, Jesus gives us four potential examples. The, the first one is, is, is turn the other cheek. And you heard that in the video as, as Doss was being confronted by, by his colleague there, at telling him he's supposed to turn the other cheek. Uh, this, this one is perhaps the best known, and it's also the most misused. To, to illustrate it, I, I need a volunteer to, to demonstrate Jesus' words. So, so, Foster, thank you for volunteering. It's almost like it was staged. I've got to get ready for this. Jesus says, let me read it again. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Foster is a black belt in karate. Uh, he's made that very clear to me. And Jesus here says that, that if, I, if I slap him on the right cheek, he is to then turn the other cheek. So let us explain how this works. I am right-handed, as most people are, because that's the right hand. That's why it's called right-handed and not wrong-handed. It's right-handed. So, so for you left-handed folks, I'm, I apologize. Um, and so Jesus actually says that if I slap Foster on the right cheek, in order for me to slap Foster on the right cheek, I have to come to his right side. Now, I could turn my hand and offer him some sort of awkward slap like that, but in order to slap him on the right cheek as a right-handed assailant, the only way that I can do that is to backhand him. And then I'm afraid of what he's going to do with my arm once his left arm grabs it, and then he might rip that out and beat me with a wet end. I don't know. Thank you, sir. Isn't that interesting? Jesus doesn't throw out words casually without meaning. Without meaning. He doesn't just throw out words that, that have no purpose. In our modern terms, Jesus says, if you get backhanded, turn the other cheek. Consider that. Uh, let's be honest. If, if somebody came up to me and slapped me with the front or the back of their hand, I'm going to be pretty stinking angry, as most of you would, right? I mean, if somebody just comes up and, and proceeds to, to, to introduce their hand to your face with force, you're going to be pretty angry about that. However, context helps us to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. In the rabbinic law, remember that's the law that was written by the scribes and Pharisees. Again, they had laws for everything. Getting hit with the back of someone's hand was twice as insulting as getting hit with the front of someone's hand. So if someone's getting backhanded, that indicates that it is a calculated attempt at dishonoring somebody. A backhand showed calculated contempt and hatred. In, in light of what we heard back in the Beatitudes, we certainly can understand that, that Jesus might even be saying that if you got backhanded for righteousness' sake... 
So in Jesus' kingdom, if you receive the ultimate insult, you forfeit the right to retaliate. Those are hard words. Those are challenging words that fly in the face of the old flesh that rises up in my body. Under Jewish law, if you slap someone, then you deserve a slap back. And that's it. No more, no less. But kingdom citizens must hold their retribution. So, so let's make this real for just a moment, because in our society, the likelihood is, is some stranger or even, uh, even your enemy is very unlikely going to come up and backhand you, because we do have laws in place. But imagine someone came up to you and said, hey, are, are you a Christian? And if you answered in the affirmative, they immediately recoiled and spit in your face. If you're like me, your first response is to do some complicated calculus. How hard do I have to punch this person to make sure that he doesn't have the means to spit on me ever again? And then I follow that up with the next level of, of calculation. How fast do I need to run to get away from this guy before he gets all the teeth out of his face? However, as a kingdom citizen, facing insult, particularly insult for my faith, my king reminds me here that I'm obligated to mind my manners. You see, this is not about self-defense. This is not about a criminal breaking into your home in the middle of the night and you allowing them to have their way with your belongings and perhaps even you. This is not about uh, standing up for somebody that's being, uh, you know, if you walked up on a crime in progress, it's not about you watching and saying, well, I can't get involved there. That's not what this is about. This is about how we respond to insult. How we respond to insult, because ultimately that's what Jesus is telling us here, how we respond to insult. You've heard the saying, you're just adding insult to injury. Well, in the kingdom of God, those two things should not be conflated. The second illustration Jesus gives is, talks about the shirt off your back. He, he talks about the possibility of someone suing you to take your shirt, now, that's probably the very definition of a frivolous lawsuit. Nobody is going to sue you for a suit of clothes. However, Jesus' response to this frivolous lawsuit is to, is to not just give them your shirt, but throw in the outer garment as well. Now, this feels strange to us, particularly in, in our context where we have this modern sense of litigation. If someone were to sue you, you would hire an attorney or talk with your insurance company, and the whole goal in, in that process is to minimize the loss. No one in our context would get sued, and if losing the lawsuit would say, hey, let me throw in some bonuses because I lost. You don't get that in our modern context. So, so what exactly is, is Jesus saying here? Does context help us at all? Well, of course it does. Because in the law, again, in the biblical law, the outer garment is considered indispensable. Over in Exodus chapter 22, verses 26 through 27, you read these words. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, 
you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In other words, that outer garment is not something that you get to give away and, and, it, and you don't get it back. In, in, the, in the law, if, if you lose your outer garment, the person who takes it is required to, to return it to you. And so Jesus here is saying, go ahead and give them the outer garment. Again, this is strange for us. This is, this is odd for us. But it is the illustration of a greater point. And the point is this. For the kingdom citizen, we have to be prepared to surrender our rights for the good of the kingdom. Now understand, this flies in the face of our American identity. This flies in the face of, of everything that we hold dear. We have a bill of of rights. We, we, we cherish those rights. We will sue people for those rights. If someone were to come and say, you, you can't have worship anymore, we'd find an attorney and we would sue because of that. There's been lawsuits that have happened in, in the coronavirus pandemic because of states who have restricted churches from being able to worship. So, so we cherish those rights, but that's not what we're getting at here. What we have to understand is that our citizenship in the kingdom far exceeds any earthly citizenship we possess. 10,000 years from now, I'm not going to be an American. 10,000 years from now, I'm going to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and my king will be at the center of everything that I do and everything that I am. We need to keep that in mind. Even as we are patriotic and we participate in the systems that are geared towards us as American citizens, we need to remember that our heavenly citizenship far exceeds our earthly one. And in the kingdom of heaven, if your enemy is attempting to take the shirt off your back, go ahead and throw your coat in as well. The third illustration that Jesus gives, the extra mile. Again, another, another strange illustration. One that leaves us feeling somewhat uncertain of what Jesus is asking of us here. Um, Imagine someone coming up to you and saying, I'm forcing you to walk a mile with me. Uh, imagine uh, somebody coming up and saying, I'm dragging you on my morning run. Well, Jesus says, well, don't just go with them on their run. Go even further with them than they anticipated you going. And you say, that, that's just strange. What's, what is he trying to communicate here? Again, it helps if we understand where the illustration's coming from. Because what we don't know from the text, but what we do know from culture, is that the Romans had a practice of commandeering civilians. Any ordinary Roman soldier, any Roman centurion, could legally commandeer a civilian to help him, for example, carry his luggage for a prescribed distance. And so if you were a Roman centurion and you were tired of carrying your, carrying your bags, then if there was some unsuspecting civilian along the way, you could grab them and say, hey, I need you to carry this bag for the next mile. As you can imagine, this process infuriated the Jews. It angered the Jews. We see it at work when Jesus was carrying his cross to the place of his execution along the way in his weakened condition. He was no longer able to bear the cross all by, his, all by himself. And so what happened? The Roman centurion grabbed Joseph of Arimathea and said, you help him carry his cross. So we see that conscription in work even in Jesus' execution. So to avoid the penalty, the, the Jews were legally obligated to comply. 
if the prescribed distance was a mile, then you can almost guarantee that when they got to 5,280 feet, that Jewish person left the bags and said, I'm done. I'm not going another step further. They were free from their obligation. They were free from penalty. But they weren't happy. For the kingdom citizen, not only did you comply for the first mile, but you gladly accompanied him for the next. How contrary is that to our way of thinking? How difficult is that as we try to reconcile that with our modern sense of individualism and our modern sense of rights? Why should I help my enemy? Why should I help this, this guy who, who stands opposed to everything that I stand for? Why should I help this, this Roman soldier who, who represents everything that I hate? Why in the world should I help this man who doesn't want to help me? By showing grace, even to our enemies, the kingdom citizen takes lengthy steps to doing something that only God can do, making friends out of our enemies. I love the testimony of Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. If you've never heard of her, you should look her up. Not too long ago, Dr. Butterfield was a lesbian women's studies professor at the University of Syracuse. In 1997, she started a research project researching the religious right, and in her own words, their politics of hatred against people like me. As she began to research this religious right, of which most of us would likely identify, reluctantly maybe, but we would certainly identify with their politics and their policies, in researching this group, she was doing research on the Promise Keepers. Men, you may remember the Promise Keepers movement where men would gather in stadiums and have times of worship and preaching and whatnot. And so she wrote a, an editorial letter decrying the Promise Keepers movement because, again, they represented everything that she was hostile toward. In response to that letter, a pastor by the name of Ken Smith sent her a, not a hate letter as she received in so many other cases, but a letter requesting a, a time, a, a meeting, an interview. Over the course of time, that request for an interview eventually developed into a friendship. And in 1999, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield gave her life to Christ. Why? Because Pastor Ken Smith went the extra mile. Didn't just go the first mile and give her the interview that she wanted. He went the next mile and became her friend. In spite of the incredible differences that they had in the way they saw the world, in spite of the incredible differences that they had in, in how they lived their lives, in spite of all the differences that they had, Pastor Ken became her friend. And without him, she may have never left the life that she'd come to embrace. What is she doing now? She's a pastor's wife, married to a Presbyterian pastor over in North Carolina, 
And instead of a women's studies professor in a liberal university, she's a homeschool mom helping to raise her kids in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Going the extra mile with the person that you disagree with, with the person that you might even use the language hate, may just be what it takes to bring that person into the kingdom of God. Finally, Jesus asks us to bless the beggar. Again, some have taken this to mean that every time you see a beggar with his hand out that you're to deposit something in his hand. You put a $20 in every beggar's cup. But what about the guy who's going to use the money to buy booze or drugs? Has that thought ever crossed anybody's mind? Sure. Uh, aren't I really just supporting their addiction? If I take the 20 out of my wallet and put it in his, in his, in his cup or his bag, aren't I really just helping his addiction and, and helping his problems? Aren't, uh, here we go. Aren't I really just an enabler? Those thoughts, right? That, that goes through our mind every time we see that person. Principally, this is not about the wisdom of giving money to every extended hand, knowing that every extended hand is not truly in need. Principally, this is about the miserly heart that never shows kindness to those in need. How, how many of us ignore the poorest among us and assume the worst about them without ever taking the time to see if they truly have a need, if they truly need things, or how, how many of us ever take the time to truly show them the kindness of the Lord by helping meet their need? Uh, again, we've all had the experience where somebody says they're looking for, looking for food or looking for, for food because they're hungry and, and they want money and you offer to buy them food instead of money and they don't really want the food, they want the money. We all have had those experiences and we've all had those situations. But how many of us have ever taken the time to stop and ask, if the, ask the question, I won't give you money, but I will take you and get you something to eat. Again, it's about the heart of the, of the kingdom citizen. Do a lot of panhandlers and beggars take the money and run to the nearest drug dealer or liquor store? Absolutely. But what about the one who's truly in need and needs to see the kindness of God from the citizens of the kingdom of God? All of these illustrations that Jesus uses gets right to the heart of who we are as kingdom citizens. And it asks the question, for the glory of God, will we abandon our right to retaliate? For the glory of God, will we abandon our right to freedom? For the glory of God, will we abandon our right to our possessions? For the glory of God, will we abandon our right to our finances? I don't like what I'm about to put on the screen. It angers me that I have to put it up there. And it angers me because it's 100% true. D.A. Carson simply said this. He says, what Jesus is saying in these verses, more than anything else, is that his followers have no rights. Let that settle in for a moment. Carson continues, 
kingdom citizens do not have the right to retaliate and wreak their vengeance. They do not have the right to their possessions, nor to their time and their money. Even their legal rights may sometimes be abandoned. Personal self-sacrifice displaces personal retaliation. For this is the way the Savior himself went, the way of the cross. And the way of the cross, not notions of right and wrong, is the Christian's principle of conduct. We sing the old song, the way of the cross leads home. But the way of the cross illustrates the pathway that all of us must walk. Jesus said we must take up our cross daily and follow him. Ultimately, what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' words aren't really about peace and war. Uh, this is not the, the place to make your case for, for radical pacifism, but it is the place to continue what we've been doing all along, to continue to check the heart condition of the citizen of Christ's kingdom. And this is the place where it really starts to meddle around in our soul and our identity. What's more important to us? Our rights or our role in God's kingdom? Over in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul would describe himself as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave, one who has surrendered himself to his master. We know a slave has no rights. However, as a slave to Christ, I have the greatest master eternity has ever known. And I'd rather be a slave to Christ than live in my own freedom apart from him. In his classic devotion, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers says this in response to Galatians chapter 2.20. There the Apostle Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Chambers said, these words mean the breaking and collapse of my independence brought about my, by my own hands and the surrendering of my life to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can do this for me. I must do it myself. God may bring me up to this point 365 times a year, but he cannot push me through it. It means breaking the hard outer layer of my individual independence from God and the liberating of myself and my nature into oneness with him. Not following my own ideas, but choosing absolute loyalty to Jesus. Once I'm at that point, there's no possibility of misunderstanding. Very few of us know anything about loyalty to Christ or understand what he meant when he said, for my sake, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. And I love what he says here. That is what makes a strong saint. Has that breaking of my independence come? All the rest is religious fraud. The one point to decide is this. Will I give up? Will I surrender to Jesus Christ, placing no conditions as to how the brokenness will come? Would you join me in prayer, please?
Lord, I thank you for the hard teachings in the Word of God, the ones that challenge us, challenge our presuppositions, expose our hates and our biases. And Lord, in spite of the difficulty of these verses, God, would you be so bold in our lives to ask us to lay down our rights as citizens of the kingdom of God? Would we be so bold as to look at this lost and dying world and receive her insults because of the righteousness of Jesus? That we would not just offer our shirt, but our cloak as well, the very thing that we're entitled to, that we would give it away for the sake of Christ. Lord, that we would help the beggar, even if we aren't certain of their intentions or sure of their desires, God, but that we would generously be kind to those who are in need. And Lord, in a world where there are many, many people who think so contrary to how we think, would we have the courage not just to go within one mile and do the bare minimum, but to go the extra mile, showing them kindness and grace, and perhaps through the Holy Spirit, allowing a friend to be made out of an enemy. These are hard words, but you're a good God, conforming us into your image and likeness daily. Move now in our hearts as we respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.